Andrew. And I'm Spencer, and you're listening to the At A Distance podcast from The Slowdown. Today, we'll be speaking with the fashion designer, Suzanne Lee. She is the founder and CEO of Biofabricate, which is a platform at the forefront of developing sustainable materials for consumer products. Prior to this, Suzanne was chief creative officer of the bioleather material startup Modern Meadow, and she's the author of the book Fashioning the Future, Tomorrow's Wardrobe. She was and remains a pioneer for exploring fashion through the lens of science and technology. At a time when material resource demands have never been greater and when climate solutions are urgently needed, Suzanne is developing pragmatic, innovative approaches for how many of the world's largest companies can move forward. But before we get into the episode, we'd first like to thank our sponsor, the Japanese luxury timepiece manufacturer, Grand Seiko, which brings an incredible level of craft and detail to every watch it makes. A great example of this is the new SBGK-017, a U.S. special edition from their Elegance collection that's shipping this fall. Taking its inspiration from Nanbuteki ironware, a form of traditional metalworking produced in the city of Morioka, in Japan's Iwate Prefecture, the watch is a proud embodiment of the craft of the company's hometown. The area is home to Grand Seiko Shizuku Ishi Watch Studio, where the company produces its mechanical watches and other high-end timepieces. Dating back to Japan's Edo period and prized for its beauty and durability, the handcraft tradition of Nanbuteki continues on to this day. The ironware features a distinctive texture called arare, or hailstone, on its exterior, a texture that finds its way onto the dark gray dial of the SBGK017. Rendered in stainless steel, the case is polished by a special Zeratsu method created to accentuate the beauty of the case's curved surfaces. The dial and sapphire crystal are also curved, giving the watch a classic look and feel. To find out more about the SBGK017 or Grand Seiko's other distinctive timepieces, head to www.grand-seiko.com. And now, here's our conversation with Suzanne Lee. Suzanne, welcome to At A Distance. It's so great to have you with us today. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm excited to be here to join you. So let's just get going and start with Biofabricate. Could you speak to your vision and mission and you know what your long view aims are for what you do? Well, the mission is our material world, but built with biology. And it's a key moment in time for us where we need to move beyond the existing ways that we've created our material world. And we're at a juncture where biotechnology can step in and and offer that new vision. If we think about the history of materials, it came from animals and plants and more recently petrochemicals. And at Biofabricate, we're excited about replacing many of those things through using biotechnology for a much more sustainable world, really. I guess that's the the motivation is how do we create the same kind of qualities, materials and experiences, but without the same impact on the planet? So it's a timely challenge. I'm curious to hear also how you got into this in the first place. I understand 
going back 20 years or so ago, it, it did involve kombucha. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I mean, I'm not a scientist at all, Spencer. My background is I'm a fashion designer. I really wasn't very good at science at school. So it's quite entertaining to me that my career ended up in the world of biotech. I got into it because I was always interested in the future of the fashion industry through the lens of science and technology. As a creative, I think we're always pushing at the boundaries to understand how else can we make this product? What else could we make it from? And those questions lead you if you're a bit of a geek researcher like I am, down a rabbit hole where you end up talking to chemists, biologists, physicists, people who are working in the lab to come up with new solutions for materials and the way we manufacture things. So yeah, it, it started for me really 25 years ago, asking the question of like, what could the future look like? In the fashion industry, we always were obsessed with what's happening next season there's very little opportunity to think about what about 10 years time? What about 50 years time? And so I, I loved that provocation. I really wanted to kind of think about fashion in the long term. And the way to do that is actually not by asking other fashion designers. It's actually by going out and finding people who are very much at pushing the boundaries of what is possible in material science, in new kind of hardware and software technologies. So that was the original provocation as a fashion designer. It was like asking people very much outside my discipline, what could the future of materials be? What could the future of manufacture be? And then when you start to open up that question, you end up in many instances talking about biology. I know that you had been working for John Galliano at the time. And you had actually grown your own your own clothes. I think that's what Spencer was a bit after. Can you get into that a bit? <laughs> yeah, sure. So actually, um, I had a serendipitous meeting with a biologist in an art gallery. It came about in a very random way. And I we were just chatting. And, you know, I said, I, I'm really interested in what the future of the fashion industry could be in 50 years. And the biologist that I was talking to, David Hepworth, based in the UK, and he said to me, well, rather than grow a crop in a field or, you know, have an animal or even think about petrochemicals, we could harness living cells, microbes to produce some of those same materials. And that was my light bulb moment, if you like. It was that moment where we had this incredible conversation where I said, hold on a minute, what would that look like? are you telling me that we could use something like fermentation, the way that we brew beer, for example, to grow fabrics? And he said, yes, absolutely. All you need to feed the cells is some nutrition and potentially you can get a living cell to produce something like a fiber or a fabric or an actual finished object product, which just blew my mind. I was like, so I could grow a dress in a vat of liquid. And the answer was yes. <laughs> this is 20 years ago. So really we then, we got together and we got some funding and I coined this term bio-couture, the coming together of biology with couture in a way that had never been possible or maybe imagined before. And the very simple process we started experimenting with was 
growing kombucha, a kombucha-like process where actually it naturally grows a material for you. Right. And that was 20 years ago when you started. What's the current situation? What are you most excited about with biofabricated materials that are in development now? Yeah. I mean, I think the problem with that, if you like, Andrew, is that it was 20 years too early. Right. <laughs> you know? So back then, if you were talking about bacteria growing fabrics for fashion, I mean, it was very alien People didn't understand why you would even want to do that. So I think we're in a very different moment in time now where the fashion industry, everybody is now recognizing just the enormous impact that it has in many, many dimensions. And so sustainability coming to the fore means we're now looking around for all kinds of alternatives. So I was looking at growing a material like cellulose using a bacteria or a yeast cell. But there are people now who are looking at growing leather-like materials using mycelium, which is the root structure of mushrooms. There are people who are using algae to make yarns and fabrics and alternatives to plastic. There are people who are still trying to make a real kind of animal leather using the skin cells of an animal and to grow leather in the lab. So all of these are about, can we grow the materials that we have today, but using all of these different types of living cells and systems. You mentioned shoes. Um, and uh, maybe that's a way in for you to, to tell us a bit about what some of the materials or products that are hitting the market, the big brands that are a reality that we can engage in now that are very real. Yeah. What's interesting, it's been a long journey for many of these companies. You know, some of them, it's taken 10 to 15 years to get to this point. But that's what's exciting is that in 2022, we're finally seeing products launch. So one of the, the one that's, that's had a lot of publicity is the mycelium leather. And there are various people making that. Stella McCartney launched a handbag earlier on this year using a material called Milo, which is from a company in California called Bolt Threads. We'd seen a, a prototype previously from, you know, the top luxury brand in the world, Hermes, more known for doing a leather Birkin, actually making a bag prototype from a mycelium leather. So that is mind-blowing to think this is not just a new generation of materials which are on the fringes of fashion. These technologies are attracting investment from some of the biggest, most prestigious brands in the world. So I think that this is an exciting moment in time for that reason. We've seen other examples, for example, with footwear. Adidas have been really huge in trialing a lot of these materials. In fact, there is a mycelium leather stand smith in the often. So that's interesting because it's going to reach a different price point, you know, with luxury fashion, which is where a lot of new technology comes in initially, that's not accessible to the rest of us. So it's going to be a bigger brand, more mass market like Adidas, where the rest of us will first get to experience these materials. That said, we also saw a series of dresses from the fashion brand in Europe, Zara, which obviously are fast fashion. 
And they've been creating dresses where one of the fibers or one of the yarns in the dress is actually from pollution. They are creating a yarn which comes from CO2, but the CO2 is converted into a chemical by biology. So we're starting to see some of the same fabrics that we normally source from petrochemicals, like polyester, now coming from a biotech source. And again, they've sold out. People are not put off by a hang tag that says, hey, this dress was made from pollution, from carbon emissions. I mean, there's so much happening in this space, and you're definitely one of the leaders of it. And I want to get into a bit of the conference that you held this past summer, the Navy Yard. But one of the things that I find fascinating is that you're also consulting in this space. And as part of that, really helping both brands and innovators understand which direction to go with. So I was curious how you approach consulting in this space. It's not like you can take, you know, your regular McKinsey approach or other consulting approaches. It's very cutting edge and you're dealing with a community that is already taking a risk at something innovative, but there's a lot of pitfalls and there's a lot of blind spots. So I was curious just how you think about consulting generally in this space. We really sit at Biofabricate at the interface between the biomaterial innovators and then the, the brands who want to work with those materials or technologies. And the reason we work with both of those clients is because as a team, we've worked in both industries. I came from fashion textiles, same with my colleagues. So we've worked in that industry, but then we've been in biotech in-house. So, you know, I spent five years at New York-based biotech company, Modern Meadow is their chief creative officer. And I built the first ever design team within a biotech company. And five years at a startup is a huge learning curve for someone to really understand what it takes to build a biological material from literally the cell through to an end garment, for example. So we work with both, you know, we work with startup innovators and there it's, it tends to be kind of helping them think through that innovation journey and how they should work with brands, which brands should they work with? And then how do they work with them efficiently? And the same with brands, you know, because I think a lot of brands get super excited by these innovations. They might read about it in the media and it may seem like they're ready to deploy, but actually that last sort of 10 to 20% of material development can be the hardest part. So, you know, there is some complexity there around kind of linking innovators with brands in a productive way. So we do an awful lot of sort of training and, and help, you know, designing tools and, you know, helping people think through the pain points for the other party. Yeah, because the narrative issue seems to be the biggest one at this stage. I think also, to be honest with you, just a term like biomaterial, there's so much assumption around what that is and how it's made. And so we spend a lot of time teasing that apart and getting brands to think about actually, well, where does the bio come from in that? Is, is it that we're using the biology to make it? Does it come from a waste source of biology? Is it kind of hinting at the end of life, the biodegradability? So the, 
the language already is incredibly complicated. And in that void of where we're creating new language, there's an opportunity for greenwash too that we need to watch out for. And that goes across many other industries. So, you know, I, I mean, I think we're concerned about greenwash wherever we meet it. Fashion likes to shortcut when it talks about these things. People kind of don't want to necessarily have a science lesson when they're going out to shop for a pair of sneakers. So there's definitely a big challenge there around how do you engage people about this? How do we get people excited about it? How do we get people to make smarter choices? That could be the same, whether it's for us, the consumer, or it's a design team at a big brand trying to make better decisions when they design the next collection or the next vehicle. So on a big picture, sort of pragmatic level, in what ways can biofabrication become a sort of solve for, you know, helping replace these major sources of waste like plastic, cement? How can it serve as a sort of more sustainable alternative from what you've learned? And, you know, what are the sort of pragmatics in terms of that? Like, how do you speak to that? On the sustainability front, I think, you know, we're talking about a a radical manufacturing alternative here where we're we're using a tiny land footprint, much less water, perhaps very different, lower toxicity or no toxicity chemistries, lower energy. All of these are the reasons why people are turning to biofabrication. It's a real question of, in the first instance, way lower impacts around the inputs and outputs going into the manufacture of a material or a product. But there's also, I think, a particularly exciting vision on the horizon for designing and manufacturing with biology where we can go beyond what we've done before. So if we are really able to harness the building blocks of the natural world, so things like the proteins, the carbohydrates that go up to make some of the the materials that we love today, if we can create nature unbound, we start to sort of enter a a whole new era of materials which could have performance like we've never imagined aesthetics that we've never encountered before. And hopefully these things can exist within a more circular system where actually it's regenerative or operating in a regenerative system, which is certainly not the case for all the plastics and petrochemicals and even animal and some of the plant materials that we use today. So it's it's really rethinking the whole paradigm around sourcing and production of raw materials and everything that we create from them. And as Andrew mentioned earlier, you recently organized this Biofabricate Summit, sort of serving as a a ringleader for this new world, bringing all these people together at the Navy Yard in Brooklyn. Who did you bring and what were you hoping to come out of this gathering? We've been running the Biofabricate Summit since 2014. It's so fascinating to see how the field has developed over those eight years. 
you know, if I go back to 2014, it was this very kind of geeky mix of people from the worlds of synthetic biology, a few artists, few investors, maybe one or two tentative brands. But really, it was the first time I feel like a kind of group of people, community of those very disparate backgrounds had come together to consider a future grown by biology. In 2022, we had over 60 biomaterial innovators presenting. We had the world's leading brands in the audience. We had some leading venture capitalists. You know, everyone is kind of there to learn, but to really find strategic partners, to find investment, to find the brands that are going to really help them on their way. So it's not a huge event, but it's a very specifically cherry-picked audience. So we want to make sure that we've got the right people in the room. And now is the perfect time. So, I mean, this by far, I would say, is our most successful event ever, just because the number of uh, relationships, deals, partnerships that came out of it. Uh, and that's really the goal for us is like, how do we make the whole field go faster? How do we bring people together more effectively and inspire everyone and support everyone? People tend to find that the Biofabricate Summit is a very supportive community, even though it may feel competitive or maybe people are competing for investment or for those partners. Actually, you know, there's like no one's really got even 1% of market share right now. So there's room for everyone. Yeah, that's what it seems like. And I mean, we had heard about the yarn made from squid DNA, which seems kind of crazy and amazing. Can you tell <laughs> us a bit about this? Well, yeah, I mean, it's a great example of one of the natural proteins, which we can get inspired by in nature, but then synthesize and produce in the lab. So Squitex is one of those innovations that rather than thinking of a, a fiber like lycra or elastane, which is in almost everything we wear, rather than it coming from a petrochemical source, it could come from a synthesized protein from a squid and be manufactured biologically into something that could be biodegradable. So that gives a sense of how we're not extracting from nature, we're getting inspired by the living world, but we can synthesize the living world in a lab environment. That's interesting. And I just had one more kind of big picture question about material. This idea of making something like something else. So this bioassembled leather, for instance, you know, which is the most talked about of these kind of new materials. And and maybe because of the vegan community and there's a real reason for it. But this idea of making something kind of like something else, a synthetic version of, rather than just pushing forward to look at this material, sure, it might feel like leather, but forget that. This idea of a new reality rather than a compromised one. How do you think about that? How do you advise around that? Again, I think it's a narrative thing. You know, it's funny because fashion for all that you might imagine around it being extremely innovative and experimental, actually, very often with designers, they kind of want what they know. So there's a reason why so many innovators who are producing a sheet material are finishing it by 
embossing it with a calf leather grain in black <laughs> because it's by far and away the biggest volume of leather materials sold would be a black calf grain, right? So although they could do so many other things with it, it seems like we're at a moment in time where the first thing we have to do is persuade people that this can indeed be a replacement for what, what you already know, and what you're already comfortable with. But I think probably like you, I'm excited for when we can move beyond that into a world where we say, you know what, it's not really like animal leather. And if we really lean into what the biology wants to do or tell us, then we're going to really start to push the parameters of things we've never felt before, things we've never seen before, things we've never experienced before. And that for me as a designer is why I got into the field in the first place. It's like, imagine, imagine what we can do when we can design, design with biology, right? Yeah, it's this forward looking thing. It's kind of like what's happening with carbon captured diamonds or, you know, synthetic diamonds. No one is ever going to have a felt sense that this is as valuable in a way or or that this is. So it's like you're setting yourself up to be second best to. And it just seems like the big shift in this industry that we're talking about is going to be when a material is introduced and it's something new beyond rather than a second to. So um, I'm looking forward to that day. I think that's where the innovation is going to come from. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's like. We're just at the beginning of these technologies. And, you know, that first stage is helping people to get there by it feeling familiar and comfortable and so on. And then once we've captured that and they're convinced about the performance of it and will now happily purchase that, then we go the next stage and we start to really kind of push where can it go that you've never seen before, you've never felt before. But we have to do baby steps to bring people along the way with us. So I wanted to just return kind of where we started this conversation or maybe a little bit after it, but you published this book, Fashioning the Future, Tomorrow's Wardrobe in 2005. And obviously a lot has happened between now and then, which we've <laughs> gotten into a little bit. And I, I wanted to bring this up because the book to me seems like it has become even more relevant in time. Uh, almost like like that the conversation now is almost primed for that book to like get a second light. And I was wondering if you could speak to this project and, and how what you wrote about then today seems to be gaining ground. Yeah, it's like I said to you before, Spencer, I'm usually 20 years ahead of the curve, so I probably should just like republish it and it would have a lot more readers than it did back then. <laughs> but again, it comes back to that thing that everything has its time and where we're at now, this technology is starting to make a lot more sense in a world of fast fashion and disposability, if something can be created, but also then dissolved back and reused in the same way that we think about 3D printing, these kinds of provocations are helpful for fashion. It's not that everything that we buy would be created in that way, but we're starting to see these innovations provoke designers, provoke brands to think about how else could we create something 
in a more sustainable way. So yeah, there were many technologies that I wrote about back then that are probably more pertinent today. I mean, remember my original research question was what does fashion look like in 50 years, right? So what I was talking about then, nanotechnology, a lot of electronic-based wearable tech, we still haven't really seen that in too many forms. We had the failure of Google Glass. We have the Apple Watch, but what else can you think of that is a really kind of smart piece of technology that we wear every day? So it's all about timing and sustainability is one of the the things that's pushing innovation in fashion, but also in every other field, right? Whether you're an architect, whether you're a car designer, uh, we're all seeking for much lower impact, circular solutions. Suzanne, thank you so much for your time today. This is really fascinating. Oh my God, such a pleasure. (laughs) Thank you both for inviting me. Thanks to our episode sponsor, the Japanese luxury timepiece manufacturer, Grand Seiko, which raises the pure essentials of watchmaking to the level of art. You can learn more about the company at www.grand-seiko.com. And thanks for listening. To hear more episodes of At A Distance, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can follow us on Instagram at slowdown.tv. To sign up for our weekly newsletter, Exploring the Five Senses, head to our website at www.slowdown.tv. This episode was produced by Ramon Broza, Emily Jang, and Johnny Simon.